Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 200. My name is Arvin, joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fuleman? I'm good. Did you think we would make it this far? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> no, statistically, this was very unlikely. I, You know what? Someone asked about this a long time back in one of our mailbags, and I analogized podcasts to like children in the medieval era where it's like they usually die in infancy. But now we're at the point where we're like, we're quite old for a medieval man. So yeah, this podcast has endured beyond anyone's expectations. And now this is episode yeah. 200. Yeah, it's been it's been a long time. So uh, we started it in the summer of 2017. Actually, the first episode was like middle of the off season 2017. Yeah. Um, and actually like the first six or so episodes, maybe more than that, are actually no longer available. Like, so if you downloaded them, those are real collector's items because <laughs> we, at the time we we weren't sure how long this was going to go. So we we didn't pay for SoundCloud Premium, and yeah. SoundCloud Regular only allows you like three hours of recording mm-hmm. uh, time, uh, which like for most audio artists is not that big a deal because like an album is probably like an hour. Mm-hmm. But for an hour long podcast, that meant we needed to have like rolling <laughs> only our last three episodes. <laughs> They were lost of time. Yeah, so no one knows anymore, except people who remember how we sound in those first 10 episodes. I do remember. We were pretty bad. But I think we've improved hmm. markedly in the time since. Um, so however good or bad we currently are, imagine us worse and congratulate us on the progress we've made. Um, yeah, so we thought we would celebrate, such as it is, with a mailbag episode. We took your questions on Twitter I tried to get everyone's down who answered within about 12 hours of me asking the question. If I missed you, I am sorry. There were a lot, but we did our best to take them all down and to answer them to the best of our ability. Um, I did do one little thing. I've done this before, but I'm making it official. If someone asked me to make a whole like roster, I made a starting lineup because otherwise these questions would take like three years to answer. Mm -hmm. I have to make 23 names. Uh, so beyond that, though, we took a stab at everything. Without further ado, let's get rolling. Our first question comes from Michael Nacarato. Which underrated Leafs player do you think could make the biggest impact in the playoffs? Who is the biggest X Factor? Congrats on 200. I love your episodes. It's so nerdy and cool. That is our sweet spot, I hope. <laughs> nerdy, but somehow cool. I don't think we hit cool very often, but... No, uh, probably not. Um... <laughs> So my answer here was, if we're talking underrated by Leafs fans, I'll go with Alex Kerfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's been, like, solid as a defensive depth option. His personal shooting this year has, like, kind of sucked. But, like, I, I, it's more that the, I think, median Leafs fan opinion of Kerfoot is that, like, this guy's a scrub. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's a scrub. I think he's, like, just an okay forward. What's that Micah quote about how for a middle six player, a lot of your memories will be of them missing chances? Kerfoot is in like the yeah. depth of that well right now. Yeah, and basically. Yeah. He had a couple of nice rushes last night actually against Ottawa. So mm-hmm. they uh, they stayed in my mind. If a few of those go in, I think everyone feels better about them. Uh, for this question, I know it's a cliched answer. I don't know if anyone on the Leafs can truly be underrated for very long, except in the context of they get criticized so brutally like Kerfoot has that everyone knows them but hates them um, because it's very hard to be unknown on uh, the Leafs roster. Brody is probably 
the closest in that he's like the best defenseman on the team, arguably. And maybe is not. I think it's arguable. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say that. At that's, least not this year. No, not this year. And I'm not sure he would be popularly considered such. Like Riley is still the big name, the big salary. But I think Brody has proven himself essential. Almost any pairing he gets on works. And it seems at least possible the Leafs are going to run McCabe-Brody as their big shutdown pairing that they throw at tough opposition in the playoffs. So obviously a, a critical hinge point. So I'm going to go with TJ. Yeah, I, I, Brody, I think by XGARPM, so essentially his defensive impact, you know, accounting for usage, you know, to the mm-hmm. extent possible has been one of the best in the league. It's not just been, like, good. It's been, like, truly elite this year, and maybe maybe a little bit last year as well. Um, so, yeah, he, he is really a phenomenally talented defensive uh, defenseman. And I, I guess he's a good example of, like, what modern defensive defensemen are, mm-hmm. right? Because Brody doesn't light you up or anything, or it's not, like, extremely physical. He's physical enough. But, you know, when I think about what makes him good defensively, I think about kind of the, the boring stuff he does well. He is a very, you know, it's hockey cliche, but he just gets his puck on a lot of sticks. He's phenomenal defending rushes, which is really helpful for the Leafs as well. So, like, you know, that that's sort of what a modern defender looks like. Yeah, I mean, in terms of his ability to just block lanes and intercept passes and just to poke check and be really fucking annoying with that stick, he's the guy in NHL who has figured out how to put the stick out without tripping people. Every single play, and it turns into a supreme defensive maneuver. So, yeah, I, you know, I think he's great. I would note, and this is tipping an answer to a later question. Uh, when I looked this up, which I believe was Monday night of this week, Brody actually had a better expected goals against than any defenseman on the Boston Bruins. Which, if you know where Boston is ranked in those metrics, is quite something. So, yeah, anyway, he's our boy. Uh, this one comes from one, one, Doggles. One last note, sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, the differential in panic, I feel, when there's a two-on-one with Riley Brody on the ice and Brody is the man back versus Riley is the man back, <laughs> has to be the largest in the NHL. Um, yeah. Any two defensemen on a pairing. When it's Brody, you're like, well, this is our best shot. Like, he's the best we're going to do at defending this. He's got, I would say, he's one of the best I've ever seen. In defending a two-on-one, he's very effective. And, I, you know, I'm sure that there are other similarly underrated players on other teams. But Brody's exceptional at it. Um, this next one from Doggles asks for our top three albums. And also, will Joseph Wall be a full-time NHLer next year? So, my top three albums all-time were uh, OK Computer by Radiohead, which is cliched, but it's up there. Silent Alarm by Block Party. Uh, this came out when I was a teenager. And it taught me that rock could involve dancing, and that was a big inspiration for me uh, when I was still a huge dork. Now I'm just an older dork, but it made me feel cool for a little bit in my teens, and that's the sort of thing that stays with you. And Post by Bjork, which covers a ton of genres in a really short time. Great album. Uh, I think Joseph Wall should be the NHL backup. And my only caution here is that Cal Dubas and the Org clearly like Matt Murray more than I did or do. So I don't know how interested they're going to be at hanging on to him. But right now, I think Ilya Samsonov looks like the starter in the playoffs. And we'll see how that goes. And if you run a Samsonov-Joseph Wall platoon, I think that's just dandy. And it comes in pretty cheap, probably. Like, I'm talking combined $4 million. Um, That probably means that the Leafs pay a third-round pick to unload 
Matt Murray to somebody. But, I mean, it makes sense to me. I think Joseph Wall has done about all he can in the AHL. He's looked good in a short NHL sample. I know that for the backup role, a lot of teams love the veteran 32-year-old guy who you think will be at least competent in 25 games a year. But at this point, it's time to get Wall a regular NHL job. Right. Um, I, I think we've chatted kind of with some level of frustration at times with how the Leafs have not always taken opportunities to elevate youngsters to positions where they probably could have played. They've been sort of risk averse in saying, okay, we're going to, you know, get <clears throat> guys who we know can play in that role, at least somewhat competently. Mm-hmm. And if this young guy drastically outperforms and takes that person's job, then great. But if they just kind of perform, you know, around what we expect, then, then maybe not. Um, and that's worked. That's worked in the sense of, you know, the Leafs have really never had an issue with playing like actively bad players at skater positions, right? Uh, they, they've quote unquote blocked Sandine or Logan, but the guys they've blocked them with have been um, of similar caliber to those guys or arguably better. You know, I'm someone who loved Sandine and Logan and, even I would admit that like there's not a there, there wasn't a huge gulf between them and you know the guys who were signed above them. Um, <clears throat> so it's possible that they do this again with Wall, but there's a few things that like like would make it more unappealing in my opinion. Um, for one, Wall will require waivers next year. Mm. It is hard to imagine him slipping through waivers. Um, mm-hmm. He had he's had a strong AHL track record. He's been good in his sample in the NHL, as you said. Also, Wall does not have, like, zero pedigree as well. He's not a guy who's, like, come out of nowhere. He was uh, picked, I think, in the third round, which is, like, relatively high as far as goaltenders go in, in the modern era. Mm-hmm. Um, he went to Boston College. It's, like, a blue-blood hockey school and had a good career in the NCAA. Like, it's just... He's probably relatively well thought of. At least mm-hmm. well enough that a team will say, yeah, we'll take a shot on him. Right. So, yeah, it just, it just seems like if you want to send him through waivers you were probably losing him. Um, teams don't like to carry three goalies for lots of obvious reasons. So what it boils down to is, okay, it's, you know, if Wall was the backup, then either Samsonov or Murray is a starter. Samsonov has played better this year. Murray has not been bad, but he's been worse than Samsonov. And also, you know, as, as you pointed out the starting year, he's just, like, often injured. And I think people sort of underrate how annoying injuries are both in terms of like obviously you lose a player on the on the ice for that period of time but it also creates these salary cap issues mm-hmm. um and the Leafs have navigated that well for for the most part but like there was there's a lot of the least trade deadline stuff was complicated and made awkward by the fact like hey we have to activate murray off ir soon mm-hmm. or, or off lti or i forget what he was on at the time um and there's also been like minor injuries this year where he has not been on IR, which case you have just like lost the cap space as well, right? So that that's like kind of a big deal. Um, another thing that's sort of gone under mentioned this year is like some of the Leafs deadline trades were due to cap it, mm-hmm. right? Like if Murray was making you know eight hundred to one eight hundred thousand to one million dollars less, then you know you don't have to dump Pierre Engvall necessarily or say or. Uh, potentially even lose Sandine if, if that was, you know, cap motivated as opposed to just like, okay, well, you know, let's let's sell early on this guy who we're not going to have room for. Uh, so anyways, all that to say, I think the Murray contract and acquisition has been, it's worked out like, okay, but there still have been really negative points um, that I don't think people have always appreciated. 
all of that to say, I kind of agree with you that, you know, you, they, they re-signed Samsonov, who was an RFA this year, and will presumably get a raise based on how good his year is, but, you know, not get a long-term marriage contract because very few goalies do nowadays. And the ones that do have a definitely higher track records, or longer track records, I should say. And then, yeah, we pay something to unload Murray. It should not cost that much money, um, or that much draft capital to unload Murray. We Because it's only a year left after this uh, summer, we could just retain a little bit as well. Um, we haven't used any retention stocks, I don't believe. Um, so. Typically, we're getting other people to retain rather than retaining ourselves. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the... Really, the only thing that holds me back, I should say the only two things that hold me back from predicting a Samsonov wall pairing next year are, one, the playoffs are coming up. Anything could happen if a goalie wins or loses a series in a big way, that is going to enter the calculus. And if Matt Murray gets in starting in Game 3 and leads the Leafs to a couple of victories in the playoffs and they finally, you know get the first round monkey off their back, that's going to be impactful on the decision-making. You, you know, there's just been too much suffering in the playoffs for it not to have an impact. And the other thing is that all this stuff about Matt Murray, about how he's a little bit overpaid and not reliably healthy, was true a year ago. And they got him anyway. And I don't know if another year of that basically being the case is going to outweigh the stuff that got them to acquire him in the beginning. Again, I think so. I think they would go with Samson off wall, but I just have to note they clearly were more comfortable with the acquisition than I was, and so they might be less comfortable with disposing of the contract. Um, from Nick Chapman, will the pain ever end? Also, congrats on 200. Thank you, and no, I don't think it will. Um, okay, this was a bit of a... A big bulky one, if you'll bear with me. Uh, this is from Evan Oppenheimer. What blog rock classic does each current Leaf player represent and why? I hope this isn't too niche. Again, I, t- I trimmed it down to six players because, you know, we don't want to take the whole roster. The blog rock era was uh, in the 2000s. And it was just at that point in time where file sharing became big. So like Napster and LimeWire and like other various pieces of software that were doomed to infect your computer with e-syphilis. And yet at the same time, you had access to a ton of music and you would have these blogs that would write up um, new music and find really obscure stuff. So if you were like a burgeoning music nerd, this was your paradise because all of a sudden you had access to all of this material that before you would have had to physically go out and buy. So you could discover stuff. You know, suddenly you had people... Um, learning about all sorts of genres that probably wouldn't have made it into their music collections. And it was a wonderful time for new music if you were young. Uh, So I'm going to link a couple of those to a couple of Leafs players in honor of people who are my age and my level of nerdiness. Uh, For Austin Matthews, I associated him to Is This It by The Strokes, which is an all-time classic album, and yet the question is going to be whether the long-term results hold up because The Strokes had two good albums and then just kind of scuffled for like 15 years. So let's hope that, that doesn't befall the Leafs. Uh, Mitch Marner, broken social scene, you forgot it in people. A homegrown star that's good at just about everything. William Nylander, fever to tell by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs at their peak, William Nylander is cooler than you are. Uh, Morgan Riley, clap your hands, say yeah, self-titled album. It's good, it's fun, they seem like nice guys. 
they only had one good record, and that feels like it's kind of telling in terms of Raleigh's limitations. Uh, TJ Brody, Antics by Interpol, studied professionalism with great results, even if it's not flashy. And finally, Ilya Samsonov, uh, Myths of the Near Future by Claxons. Claxons had an, a subgenre called New Rave that was pretty much just them and lasted for like two months in the year that this album came out, but it was a lot of fun while it lasted. Infer what you will about Ilya Samsonov from that. Um, uh, so, see, yeah. I, I have nothing to add um, to, to, to this or basically any other music one, so, so we, we, we can just move on. Yeah. Thank you for the people who asked me the music questions. You are uh, catering to my preferences on that one. Um, there was one more like this, and it was from old friend Sabres Kevin. Um, and uh, Kevin being Kevin, he asked a question that's very appropriate towards me and also kind of stuck the knife in while he did it. What is the record title released in the last year the Leafs won a series that best embodies Leafs fandom? And he suggested several options, all of which were kind of hurtful zingers but the last one he suggested was good news for people who love bad news by modest mouse and that feels really on point for toronto for about two decades now so i'm gonna have to go with that um from old friend totally offside how would you rank pancakes waffles and french toast follow-up questions if you had to eat one of them with a pint of beer as accompaniment which would you choose and why arvind your thoughts on this? Um, so I've never had French toast, but I like the idea of it. So I'm going to rank it first because I don't love either pancakes or waffles. So I think like the idea of French toast is superior to me than the other ones. I feel like we should get Despite you some French toast. Like we, get I that... mean, I'm sure it's been available to me, but I, yeah, I've just never, just never done it, I suppose. You live in a major American city. This has got to be attainable for you at some point. We can get you some French oh, toast. Oh, it's definitely, it's definitely attainable. I mean... At this point, it's like I've never seen a Star Wars movie either, and like at this point, like I've gone this long in my life with never seeing a Star Wars movie. Actually, mm. that's not true. I saw Rogue One, which is like the most disconnected of all the Star Wars movies. Also, um, one of the better ones, frankly. Yeah, I feel like I, I kind of, you know, mm. <laughs> saw one. It was good. I'm leaving on a high. <laughs> you know, like, and I loved the Star Wars movies as a kid. Like, I saw all of the original trilogy probably fifteen times each, and um, I watched the prequels as it was and i was like okay maybe i'm getting a bit old for this and my brother likes them so i i went to see them um and then randomly over christmas a couple of years ago they were playing all of the star wars prequels and i watched like revenge of the sith and i was like i think this might be the worst movie i've ever seen like they're (laughs) (laughs) they're actually really bad in places really bad and uh yeah so i i don't think you would get into them if you didn't see them when you were like 10 um as regards to the French toast waffles pancakes situation, I went with French toast number one. French toast has like a high ceiling. I feel like it's not always made the best, but when it's really good, it's the best option. And then I went with pancakes and waffles. The beer question is a bit... Because beer is very filling, and so are all of these to a greater or lesser extent, you definitely can't have it with pancakes, I don't think. Because if you have like three to four pancakes you feel like you weigh 4 billion pounds and you're the size of a blimp. And beer will not make that less. So yeah, I decided to put them alongside waffles and then like sparingly top the waffles. I, I think that makes some sense. Like waffles, I mean, waffles have been had in savory context, right? Like with chicken and waffles is a thing, but like no one has mm. chicken and French toast. 
Yeah, that's true. Like, and so if someone know, had like a beer at a chicken and waffles place, I wouldn't like. I wouldn't think that's the weirdest thing in the world. It feels like it's something you can do, and like you know, beer and fried chicken are a tale as old as time. So yeah, I think I feel pretty good about the waffles beer situation. I feel like we've gotten to a strong answer on this one. Um, from one of the Michael Stevens, who occupy Leaf Twitter, uh, he riffed on our uh, our setup question. He said. Live with, laugh at, or love, actually like the term value, the following Leafs pending UFA contracts for David Kampf, Justin Hole, and Alex Kerfoot. Do you want to start on this one? I've answered too many music questions. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I think the live with is going to be Hall. Mm. Uh, Hall is as like a tweener, you know, second, third pair tweener for like three, three and a half million. You're not like bragging to all your friends or writing, you know, steal on Twitter when that contract gets signed. Mm-hmm. But it's fine, right? He gets a lot of crap, but there's there's like a lot of teams out there where Hall is just sort of like kind of a playable second-pairing guy and the team finishes 18th, you know? Yeah. Right? Like there's that, that's, that just happens in a lot of places. He's not a terrible player, so I think someone could sign him for that and it wouldn't be a horrible deal. Um, so I think that's a deal you're like, you kind of just begrudgingly accept. You're like, eh, okay. It's like the Alex Kerfoot deal, the current Alex Kerfoot deal. Mm-hmm. Um, laugh at I think David Camp's next contract is going to be bad yeah you got a uh, bad feeling about it yeah I just I mean he's had a quietly pretty terrible year um, I know he gets absolutely like buried in defensive zone minutes and usage and all that sort of thing mm-hmm. but the Knicks are getting caved in in his minutes and I think the, how much he struggled with without Engvall it's sort of a, a symptom of the fact that he Despite being kind of a depth guy, he actually needs kind of particular line mates to succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw, you know, the great fading of the Aston Reese camp, all the Kubel lines. Like, no one could do anything with the puck. So even when they retrieved it in the defensive zone, it would just lose it a second later. Um, you know, Pierre Engel has a lot of warts as a player, but one thing he is very good at is transporting the puck. Yeah. And I feel like Camp sort of needs that guy on his line in order to just not get absolutely buried. You know, he, he does a lot of good stuff in the defensive zone, but then he has no ability to actually move it outside of the defensive zone. He needs someone to do that for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, in that sense, maybe playing him with Sam Lafferty is, like, not a bad idea. But, um, yeah, it just... Like, I, I think Camp has a reputation as, like, a premium defensive center. Um, so he'll, he'll be paid, like, on the high end for a fourth liner. And mm. I don't think it's a given that he'll give great results there. Um so I don't think it'll be like a, he's not going to get, you know, a deal that absolutely sewers a team, but I, I think of these three pairs, he'll get the deal that is probably the worst. Um, and then the, the love is just Kerfoot mostly again, because his, his offensive numbers have dipped so much that it's, you know, it's like a throwback to 2015 where the best value free agents were just guys who had shooting slumps the previous year. Mm-hmm. It feels like Kerfoot could pretty easily fall into that category. Yeah. Not hard to imagine at all. Um, I, I mostly agreed with you. I did say, I think Justin Hall has the potential to get into a bit of a danger zone in terms of like, there's a point where his contract is no longer in touch with his value. And that's easier to reach. I think for a right shot defenseman who plays tough minutes where teams sort of are fuzzier on what these guys are actually worth. As you see, there are a ton of guys like the the Carson Susie bracket, basically, where he's like sort of a fourth defenseman and he's pretty good and he's making in the vicinity of three million. 
I think I could see that getting to a level where I would let him walk away, not least because I want Timothy Lilligren to play up a little bit, and it's getting crowded over there. Um, Kampf, yeah, it's been it's been tough. His numbers on the year are still quite respectable, but yeah, like, if his XG in the last 10 games is somehow telling, he's getting killed. And that's not great. You know, there was a Justin Bourne article talking about what Matthew Nyes will have to learn to be an effective member of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And one of the things he talked about is being on the right side of like a huddle, you know, like a, a scramble for the puck when you have your line mates along the boards, they're fighting for it. And if you advance past it and it comes out your way, you're off on a break. But the prudent defensive play is to be on the conservative side for it. So if it goes against you, you're ready to scrap for it. You're staying in front of the opposition. You're preventing a bad chance against. I feel like David Kampf always takes the defensive side of the scramble every single time. And coaches love that. And they love him. And it means he doesn't generate a whole lot. You know, and I have a hard time piecing out his role, you know, beyond that. Just saying, like, he's the maximum defensive option. Um, definitely there's a point at which his numbers aren't good enough. Yeah. And then Kerfoot is so devalued that like, maybe he becomes a value contract. Um, yeah. Ready to go to the next one. Yep. From BJ Trody. Great name. Congrats on 200 episodes. One of the best leaf pods out there. Aw, you guys. Uh, question. You are Frodo Baggins. Three of your friends are joining you as you leave the Shire. Which three members of the current Leafs roster would you choose to help you in a quest against the Dark Lord Sauron? Uh, I went with Mark Giordano. He provides my party with old-timey wisdom and defensive magic. Mitch Marner just sort of feels like Pippin, emotionally. And Wayne Simmons, because we are going to have to fight somebody at some point. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I tried to use different players here. Uh, I went with John Tavares. I feel like he's my Sam. You know, I need someone who's loyal to me, committed, unwavering. Um, you know, Islander jokes aside, Tavares, you know, he's going to put his head down. He's going to grind. We're going to keep walking to Mordor. He's just going to, you know, keep plugging away. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, so the other two people I got were more for, like, levity. Uh, I got Justin Hall. Um, Hall's <laughs> clearly very popular in the room. If you see any, like, least produced thing, like, he, he's always laughing, joking around. It seems like everyone on the team really likes him. So that'll be helpful. He's also taller than the average orc. I think that could be a useful skill. Um Morgan Riley was the last guy I chose. Just, I feel like Morgan Riley would be a good buy. Yeah, it's true. Um, the only thing that I wonder is who's going to carry you like Sam did Frodo or Jake Muzzin carried Justin Hall. But yeah. uh, <laughs> much to contemplate there. Um, next up, from Mr. Walker B. If they move JT to the wing... Can he still take face-offs and then just shift over, swapping responsibilities with whoever assumed the center role? Seems a waste to lose that skill. Well, the Leafs have done this in the past with Nylander when they wanted a right-handed face-off man, and he's right wing to Matthews or Tavares. But if they're moving John Tavares to the wing, it's because they're playing Ryan O'Reilly at center alongside him. O'Reilly is himself a really good left-shot face-off man. So I don't know if you bother chasing the modest degree of improvement, you get by shuffling Tavares in to take face-offs every now and then? So I, I looked at the game logs for when uh, Tavares and O'Reilly <clears throat> were on the same line. And Tavares was still taking face-offs in those games. I don't know if those came with a, with O'Reilly on the ice or not. But like, mm. 
I mean, I think the Leafs will still do that every every so often. Like they might, you know, they might just ride the hot hand with with faceoffs. I don't think it's a big deal either way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, my my estimate of how good O'Reilly and Tavares are on draws are pretty close together. Um, you could imagine, you know, as O'Reilly is still working back from a broken finger, you might want to protect him a little bit more and not have mm-hmm. him take as many draws, right? Because there's a lot of sticks flying and your hands are in close, you know, they're in the danger zone in faceoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty easy to take a to take a slash. I absolutely would not put it past a Tampa player to accidentally slash O'Reilly on the hand during a draw. <laughs> you know that that's, that's playoff hockey. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe they play it a bit safer there. Yeah, and that's a legitimate counter to uh, to what I said. I don't think in the abstract it makes a huge difference, but lines are not set in stone and situations change. Um, this is from Bry Gray, uh, continuing the L theme. Construct the best possible hockey team out of active players who have the letter L in their first or last name. Um, we tried to go with different rosters here. I made some oversights, which Arvin took advantage of because he's a shrewd GM. But I went with Leon Dreisaitl, Elias Pettersson, and William Nylander as my top line. Hampus Lindholm and Eric Carlson as my defense pairing. And Linus Elmark as my starting goaltender. Um... I feel pretty good about this roster. Lindholm and Carlson are like a great contrast of skills. They work together mm-hmm. well. Um, Pedersen can set up pretty much anybody. Dracidal is a very good finisher who can also pass. And again, all of these guys can put the puck in the net. Um, Nylander is the teensiest bit of a homer pick, but he's a very good natural right wing. And no right wing who sc- has scored more points than him meets the terms of the question that I can tell. So, yeah, I've, I've got that. However, you did actually show me up on this one because I was thinking of Mitch Marner as being named Mitch Marner. And his full name is Mitchell, which has two L's. Yes. Yes, on the NHL website, he's listed as Mitchell Marner. That's um, a market So he's my right winger. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, my other forwards are Alexander Barkov at center and Kirill Kaprizov at left wing. So this is a pretty, you know, high octane, um, you know, stars, uh forward group uh barkov and marner are going to provide a little bit of defensive solidity because my defense pairing is rasmus dalin and kale mccarr um so mccarr is the big omission from fulman uh which which i was able to take advantage of so yeah these are these are crazy offensive defensemen yeah i was Uh, gonna say that it was like part of my strategy or my team building or something but i definitely forgot that his name has an l on it kale is a weird (laughs) name i don't know i didn't think of it (laughs) Well, it, it's also he missed a bunch of time this year, so he's not as high on like leaderboards and stuff. Like, because the way I looked at this originally, it's like, okay, let's just look at NHL.com score by points. You know, the way the, the way the way God intended, the way NHL writers choose awards. <laughs> Canada know? has done that for like I'm sure the last 25 years in the Olympics. So, yeah, um, there are some players who I had to like internally debate between, um, and I, I think there there are a lot of guys who could be. In the mix here, Clayton Keller has had a good year. Uh, Tim Stutzla, I considered putting him in over Barkov. Same with Joe Pavelski. Joe Pavelski, both Pavelski and Stutzla are actually like, they're the centers on two of the best lines in hockey. Um, the Stutzla, Giroux, uh, Kachuk line in Ottawa, and then the Pavelski, Robertson, Hintz line in Dallas. So like, they deserve a lot of credit for that. I think in many ways they've had a better year than Barkov, who, mm. I, you know, P- Barkov is firmly in the so underrated he's overrated camp right now like he, he's he's a good player 
right? He's a, he's a very good player, but like ev- everyone recognizes him as a very good player. He's not underrated at all. Um, the last honorable mention I had was Tyler Toffoli, who's had a very, very good year. Um, but he just doesn't have the long-term track record of these guys, so I didn't want to put him on this team. Yeah, that's fair. It it would be an interesting matchup between our two teams. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I feel a little better about mine, but it's pretty close. My oversight on Kale McCarr is bad. Um, yeah. yeah, if they're McCarr, equal, it means McCarr. that I screwed up because I picked first, so... <laughs> Yeah, uh, having Makar is, is a big help. And we were also just chatting about like, who, who would win between the L's and the W's. The problem with W's is that like there's just not that many players there. Like your your forward line, the ones I'm sure there's people who have forgotten, but like you you'd, you'd have to be very heavy on Matthew players. You go with Matthew Kachuk, Austin Matthews, and then probably William Nylander on the right wing, mm. and then you have Devin Taves as your defenseman. But I couldn't figure out another good good defenseman. Also, your goaltender is like maybe Mackenzie Blackwood. Yeah, or or Joe Wall. Yeah, and like or, that's and, not you could, great. <laughs> you could go Jeremy Swayman. Yeah, but I mean, th- and these are going up against if we count the L's, Ulmark or Sorokin. Like, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's that's tough. Um, yeah. Anyway, interesting question. That was a very down goes Brown question, and we got a couple in that vein. So if you enjoyed that segment, there will be at least one more like it. And I screwed up the team building on that one, too. So stay tuned for that. Um, our next question from Rob Quadrini. The next time Leaf, uh, sorry, the next time Keefe goes 11-7, should he use Riley as a forward so it's really a 12-6 lineup? If not, why? So you I, had a very um, thought-out answer for this. So, like, just, go, I'm not going to add anything to this. Just go do your rant and uh, <laughs> take it away. Thank you. Okay, so... A lot of people like the Morgan Riley at wing idea, and I need to start by saying I don't know one way or another whether it would work. It might, okay? I would have been skeptical of Dustin Bufflin or Brent Burns moving effectively back um, from forward to defense. Now, I would note that tends to be what they did, but they could play both positions effectively. I could be wrong, but here's why I don't think that Riley would be an effective forward. This is putting aside from the fact I have zero expectation the Leafs are going to do it in any kind of serious way, except for like scattered random shifts when they're six on five or something. If you're going to do this, first of all, I would rather do it to start a season than mid-season. Wing is the easiest position in the league in terms of the skill set to do it competently, but it still takes time to get up to the instinctive level where the best hockey is played. Okay, the best hockey involves you doing things without having to think about them a very high percentage of the time. Morgan Riley has spent his whole career learning to be a defenseman. If you change a lot of the things he has to do, his instincts are going to be a little bit off. And that's going to be a problem. There's going to be a learning curve. So if you're going to do this, give him a summer to work on it. Don't do it mid-season. Second thing. Because wing is mostly easy, just being a guy on the wing is not a separator skill, okay? There are a million guys who can be a competent NHL winger at a certain level. But to be a really good winger, you have to be offensively productive, and that almost always means you have to be a shooting threat. You know, maybe you can be a super exceptional playmaking winger, but you've got to threaten at least 15, 20 goals um, to be really effective, 
Uh, you know, you at least have to make it possible that you're going to put the puck in yourself. Um, Riley would presumably score more as a winger than he has as a defenseman, but he's not an obvious goal-scoring threat like Burns or Bufflin. You might both say that those guys are cannon slapshot threats that work best from the point, and Riley isn't really giving you that anyway, but I've never seen much to indicate that Morgan Riley is going to threaten 20 goals on the wing. Put it this way, is Riley going to be as productive as Kelly Yarncroke has been this season? Maybe. Um, Riley makes three and a half times as much. Now, I know that sounds like the sunk cost fallacy, but it's not. So stay with me on that. Uh, we can agree that Riley is flawed as a top pair guy. Like we've talked about that on this podcast extensively. He's not perfect. Is he so degenerated in value that we don't think he's even a second pair guy? I'm more skeptical of that. He's had a tough year in terms of goals against, but I think he's still pretty effective. Um, he can form a good second pairing with plenty of players, and he's done it before. He's been on lines that did respectively in tough usage for years now. And I don't think that there are many teams where he's not one of the four best defensemen. Basically, Boston and Carolina are my answers. If Riley is about a $2 million a year winger and about a $4.5 million to $5 million caliber defenseman, in both those cases, his contract is kind of too high. But playing him at wing is pretty dubious in a cap league because you're going to have to replace him. And replacing him on defense is probably harder and more expensive. Now you might say, okay, but the Leafs right now have a ton of defensemen. If the guys who are going to replace him are already under contract, you're already committed to them, you say make the best arrangement out of it. Now again, you're already ignoring the fact that I said you should give him the offseason to learn how to do this. But... Putting that aside, Rasmus Sandin was the guy who was obviously blocked, and he's gone. Now you're trying to play something like Gustafsson Hall as your third pairing while Moe is trying to learn how to deke. Um, I assume you're bumping one of Yarncroke, Kerfoot, or Bunting from the top nine to do this, because I think you're playing Riley left wing. Um, is that an upgrade that justifies moving Riley off the defense altogether to play Eric Gustafsson? I doubt it. To sum up, I think this conversation is frustration at Riley for not being a 1D. That's fair. He's not really, and he's kind of paid like one. But there's a big difference between not being a 1D and better off being a middle six winger, maybe. Um, I don't think Riley is so flawed that it's worth moving him out of the top four on defense to go into the top nine on forward. Um, and again, I think this is all academic anyway, because I don't see Keith ever doing it. That is my spiel on Morgan Riley, the <laughs> defense forward. I, I agree basically all of that. Um, hmm. it, it's, it's, it's an idea. It's a, it's a kind of half-baked idea, in my opinion, moving Riley to the wing for, for all the reasons that you, that you would have stated there. Yeah. I mean, I, I get the appeal, but I don't think it's, it's going to work out. This is from Mark Rayom. Thoughts on some rule change ideas. Number one, coach gets to decide if an awarded penalty shot gets changed to a power play. Number two, instead of a penalty for puck over glass, treated as icing, so no line change. And number three, the Leafs get a free five on three once a month and once per playoff round. Your thoughts, Arvind? Um, so I'm on board with uh, number one, the, getting to choose whether a penalty shot is... Um, a penalty shot or a two-minute power play. 
Um, as this turned out this year, the Leafs had, I think, like maybe three or four penalty shots, and I think they have been Kerfoot twice, Bunting once, and Aston Reese once. There are none of those players who I would prefer to have them take the penalty shot versus, um, you know, a two-minute power play. Uh, you know, it also gives some strategic variation. You know, when you're when you're ahead late in the game, the two-minute power play is really helpful because that's two minutes where you're almost certainly not getting scored on. Um, so I, I'm I'm good with this. Uh, the puck over glass penalty, I used to dislike it more than I do now. I used to think it was dumb and it should just be treated like an icing. But, you know, it being a penalty is... It's not the worst thing in the world. Like, I mean, I guess it is sort of frustrating when, like, someone clearly just does it accidentally. Or, like, someone clears it, like, the entire length of the ice over the other goalie's head and it goes out and that's a penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it's not it's not a huge deal. I can just see that being, okay, it's kind of like a skill thing. Like, you know, if you want, you want to be a good player, you know, keep control of the puck. Mm-hmm. And then the Leafs get a free 5 and 3 once a month and once a playoff round. That would be great, but it'll make it all the more embarrassing when we lose. <laughs> or if we use it at, like, the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, very much so. Uh, or, so I would just say, would be even, yeah. even more hilarious. Sorry to keep going, but would be even more hilarious from a fan of other, from the perspective of a fan of another team, is the Leafs don't use it until like, you know, game seven when they're down by four or something. <laughs> it's like <laughs> when it's the third period against Boston this? and they're already getting yeah. Um, so I would say, I like the uh, the penalty shot power play choice option. I would go even a little bit further and say make it so that the penalty shot um, power play choice is kind of doubled up. If you miss the penalty shot, you still get the power play. Um, Now, there's already a problem with the refs being unwilling to call penalty shots. This would make that worse unless they were firmly instructed that you got to do it. So keep that in mind. The penalty shot thing, I remember complaining about this. Someone someone mentioned it to me, and I I haven't checked the rule book, so maybe this is true. But it's only supposed to be a penalty shot if they feel like the player did not get a reasonable shot attempt off at all. Like, if mm. they were impeded but still got, like, an okay shot attempt off, it's just a penalty, which I don't totally understand. I just feel like it should be more of a, if it's a penalty on a breakaway, it should be a penalty shot. But yeah. whatever. Like, this, yeah. is, this is not within the top 100 of my complaints about NHL refs. Yeah, so there's that. Um, I like the puck over the glass penalty. I said it, and I'm not ashamed. I want to avoid the hell out of shooting the puck out because it's a boring momentum killing play. And I am fine having the end of that being a penalty to give deterrence, you know, like keep the puck in the rink. And if it's so difficult to do, cause you're under pressure that you shoot it out, then credit to the other team's forecheck. But yeah, I'm actually fine with that. Um, our next question is from PJ Broski. What are the Leafs' plans for load management considering Matthew Nyes will only be able to join for the last three games of the season? How do you give him an honest run within the top six while resting the core four? Um, I'm not sure that getting Nyes in the top six for three games is the hugest priority unless he thinks they think he's actually going to play there in the playoffs. Um, maybe. But I think that people are expecting a lot from an NCAA walk-on. Like... The first of these three games would be the first game of professional hockey Matthew Nyes has played in his entire life. And he's a good prospect. He's an exciting prospect. But I think at that point, your objective is like, get his feet wet. So put him on the third line, give him a couple of scattered shifts with whoever of the core four is playing and not resting for, uh, for having clinched. And maybe put him on the second power play unit a little bit. But like, 
I very much want this to be like, just get used to it a little bit because I'm not expecting a lot from Nyes in the playoffs this season. Right, yeah. I, th I think kind of the load management questions are almost entirely orthogonal to the Matthew Nyes questions. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't think the Leafs will see the two as interrelated at all, you know, for the reasons that you say. Um, I think they're just going to give their top guys scattered days off as needed. The Leafs are playing a back-to-back -to -back today. Uh, they were in Ottawa yesterday, and they're going to be playing uh, Detroit in Toronto today. I, 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 there'll probably be some lineup changes there. They're going to be very, very cautious with any injuries, like um, Noel Achari's, you know, neck injury, which I guess any neck injury you should be very cautious with in general. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the load management stuff will just, it, it'll just be scattered games here and there. It's a little complicated by um, players chase for various milestones. Nylander might not have a better shot to hit 40 in his career, right? And I'm sure he would very much like to. Mm -hmm. um, so things like that. For Nyes himself, yeah, I think they just kind of play him on whichever the depth lines projects to have easier usage, and that'll depend on the lineup for those games. Um, I, I think the most likely outcome for Matt, Matthew Nyes' current ability is that he's probably, like, would be competent as, like, a replacement level forward, mm. right? Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't think that's something you should move heaven and earth to deal with. I think the most likely path is that, yeah, he plays, you know, two to three games in, like, a, a somewhat sheltered-ish depth role. If Ryan O'Reilly's back then, putting him on a third line with Matthew Nyes would make a lot of sense to me, give him a, a, a good pro there, someone he can learn good habits from, all that sort of stuff. Um, but then I think the most likely path is that he sits for the first game of the playoffs and, you know, probably sits for most of the playoffs unless something has kind of gone a little bit awry, to be honest. Uh, mm -hmm. If he blows everyone away after a trial, he might stick higher up in the lineup or stick in the lineup at all. But I think that would require, like, you know, let's say he plays three games of the regular season. I think it would require, like, two goals, his line not being on the ice for a goal against, and just being absolutely dominant on a shift-by-shift -shift basis. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think that's very likely. I can remember seeing that one time, and it was Austin Matthews on Team North America, where the guy came on as a 13th forward, and within three games, everyone was like, oh, yeah, no, he's for real. Um, that's a high bar. And so I don't want to rain on anyone's parade about this, but boy, it feels to me like the hype is running a little bit ahead of schedule on that one. Um, from Leafs Lurker 96, congrats on 200. You guys are also nice to us. Thank you. Seriously. I, I'm flattered by all the kind words we've gotten out of this. Um, if you and Arvin started a non-hockey podcast, what would it be about? Um... My other interests are like novels and hipster music, which I don't know if we could rap about very much because I don't think they're your thing. I, I would not be able to bring anything to the table on that. I, I don't think I'm a well-rounded enough person to have a podcast on anything that is not hockey or maybe a different sport. Yeah, that's that's fair. I like I definitely could not do another sport. Like I barely know the rules of basketball, and that's like probably my second favorite sport if I have to pick one. Oh, that makes you qualified to be an NBA ref. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to call whenever somebody falls over and I think it'll work itself out. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is from Max Beef. Uh, looking back, what opinion did you have about the Leafs during the beginning of the Shanahan era that was really wrong? For example, I figured that their best chance of winning the cup was when Matthews and Marner were on ELCs. Um, as you might expect, I think we're wrong in a related way on this one. But, yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I don't think that take is necessarily wrong. Like the, I mean, it was a good chance. Yeah, 
they, they've gotten as far during the EO season as they've gotten since, so it, it, it's hard to say one way or the other. I think the Marlowe contract really hurt during the ELCs. But. Mm. And, you know, that's one thing that Arvin and I have to say was very right about. He was very hard on the Marlowe contract, and he turned out to be 100% correct. So Yeah, but on the other yeah. hand, I, so I'd say the biggest consistent mistake I've made um, is just kind of overvaluing depth guys. Mm. Or overvaluing certain depth guys, right? Um, so I guess this sort of relates to what you're going to talk about as well. But Martin Marinson, I thought, probably deserved more of a shot than he ended up getting. And then, like, looking back, it's like, okay, you know, he was actually probably given a fair shot. Like, he, like I think I sort of was a bit too blind to to context and some of the very visible issues that players like Marinson had, right? So I, I'd say that depth defensemen have been something that is... Uh, I haven't. I don't have. I don't think I have a phenomenal record with uh, with depth defensemen. Yeah, and I took the bait in a specific way on Connor Carrick. He formed a very good pairing statistically with Jake Gardner for a little while, and I looked at that and I said, "Hey, dope." Um, and I thought that Carrick was probably better than he is. He was like a a functional sixth defenseman, but I thought Gardner Carrick was something that like a serious team could play in the top four. And I don't think that's true for an extended period. Like, Jake Gardner can drag pretty much any partner to respectable fantasy stats, or at least he could when he was uh, out of speak. But I probably should have been a little bit more aware of the fact that he was playing with a third-pair guy. I think, just as an aside, there are certain biases that creep in just when you talk or write or do too much hockey. And I think over-focus on lesser players is a big part of that. Because almost everything that needs to be said about like Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner get said pretty easily. And if you're doing a podcast every week or two where you talk for an hour or two hours, or you have to come up with stuff to write, you are inevitably going to start thinking longer about secondary players than they probably merit on a proportionate basis, just because you're looking for new stuff to say. Like I don't, you know, I think we overrated Nicholas Albe Kubel, for example, last off season, but as much as anything, we were just, you know, exploring all the new moves and we naturally gravitated towards someone there was new stuff to talk about with them. So I think, you know, just since I've been on the website, that's probably been a bias of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, this next one is from Spaceman Ian. There is discussion of new teams being added in Houston and Atlanta, which would give us 34. How many teams do you think we can reasonably have before the league starts to get unwieldy and needs to be carved up into, say, NHL 1A and NHL 1B? Next answer is if you're Gary Bettman. Um, So my answer to this started with, why is it going to get unwieldy? I'm not saying it won't, but I'm saying that we have to specify what things we specifically think are going to go too wrong to sustain as one league. And then we have to guess when it would get to that point. So the three things that occur to me as potential problems as the league keeps expanding are, one, the league talent level gets diluted to the point where the product suffers badly. Two, the odds of a championship become so low that fans lose hope they'll ever win. They start feeling like it's pointless. Uh, Three, the geography of having one big league becomes too much of a strain on travel and on viewership numbers due to differing time zones. So I went through these one, two, three, if you'll bear with me. Um... For number one, which is the league talent level gets too diluted and the product suffers badly, I think we would have to go a long way before that became a real problem. 
something like it actually did happen in the 1970s. The league more than tripled in size between 1967 and 1980. It went from six teams to 21 teams over that year, over that period. And so, not coincidentally, you have a stretch there where you had some awful expansion teams, including probably the worst team of all time, which was the early Washington Capitals. And you have these dynasties at the top, um, most prominently the Montreal Canadiens. Um, in that period, I think you had a real problem with talent dilution, as well as um, the World Hockey Association um, forming as a competitor league. Now the difference would be a lot slighter. The NHL is in an unchallenged position as the number one league in the world. Um, you're increasing by 3 or 6 or 12% instead of 250%. So I think you would have more teams without a genuine star, but that applies to a lot of the league already, depending on how you define genuine star. So unless they go to like 48 teams in a leap, I don't think we're near that. Um, the second one is about hopelessness, which is a, a subject on which we consider ourselves experts on this podcast. Um, the actual percentage difference in your chances is not changing that much at this point, but like, it occurs to me that at some point you do lose hope, right? You know, there are teams that have never won a Stanley Cup, and statistically, there are going to be a few teams that will not win a cup in the next 50 years. You know, like, that's a lot to take on. Um, and, you know, certain ironclad markets can endure that, but maybe that does start to tell after a while. And then third, the thing about time zones and travel only really starts to become an issue if the league extends outside North America, which would be really cool, but doesn't seem to be on the horizon at all. If the league ever does divide into, like, separate divisions... Um, I think it'll be probably because they expanded outside this continent and they're not doing that soon. Yeah, um, I, I basically agree with all of that. Um, only thing I wanted to add really is that like 32 is a good number. Mm -hmm. Uh, it makes a lot of realignment possibilities feasible and even uh, 34 is way more awkward to deal with. So, you know, my preference would just be 32, 32 is good. Just stick with 32 for a bit. Let's let this like percolate for, you know couple decades yeah i think um the league is not in a huge hurry to rush this like they will take the expansion fee as things materialize but they don't seem like they're moving desperately aggressively to get this done um and oh yeah we were asked to answer as if we were gary bettman everything is great the way it is our game is growing faster than ever and better than it's ever been yay um this one is from jaboy cruz Let's say the Leafs beat Tampa and lose to Boston. What do you think the offseason looks like? Your thoughts, Arvind? Um, I mean, I, I think they probably stay the course at this mm -hmm. point. So they, I mean, some of this depends on things that are unknown to us right now. Like, does Austin Matthews want to extend? And does he, you know, if the Leafs beat Tampa Bay and lose to Boston, and presumably, like, kind of average-ish way. Right, like the relatively close series, Boston just proves to be better over over six or seven games or so. Mm -hmm. um, if he wants to resign, then you resign him. Basically, you probably try and work out an extension for for William Elander. You retain the free agents you can try to retain. Right, so maybe at least try and keep Ryan O'Reilly. Maybe he he's like, okay, cool, this was a good team, we could have won. Um, I'm gonna sign on for cheap. Uh, Nyes is probably promoted to the lineup. Robertson probably promoted to the lineup. See what he can do depending on his health. 
Um, they probably trade their first rounder for multiple lower round selections, take some dudes below six feet who are not that athletic but have good hockey sense. Um, that also happens if we beat win the cup. That also happens if we lose in the first round. <laughs> if Dubas is in charge of the team, that happens pretty much guaranteed. Yeah, I, I answered in a similar way. I had a stay the course answer, which is Matthew signs a massive extension. Dubas stays to sign to it. Nylander probably stays. I did think um, Justin Hall was probably gone, and one of Kerfoot and Kampf was too. Um, Nolachari, I think they like him a lot, and I think he's affordable. ROR. ROR is entering that weird zone in his career where it really is up to him. If he wants to pursue maximum dollars, he can certainly go do that and still command something based on his name. If he wants to be more of a just-get-me-one-more-ring sort of guy. I mean, we saw Mark Giordano in pursuit of his first ring take a way below market value contract. So it's really up to him. And then I had them uh, paying a third to unload Matt Murray. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I didn't mention that, but that probably happens. I mean, in accordance with our, with our previous, uh, with our previous answer about wall being the backup. Right. So uh, these two, I put together because they seem to be uh, very similar in terms of their content Uh, from Todd Derushi. Do you look at Tampa limping into the playoffs optimistically or most, more so like we were falling into a trap? The numbers tell me to be hopeful. The Toronto Maple Leafs experience tells me otherwise. And from Michael Zanette, is Tampa just playing rope-a-dope the last part of the season to get the Leafs into a false sense of security? Or are they actually ripe to be beaten this time? Tampa is better than they've looked the last few weeks, unequivocally. I am quite confident of that. I don't think you can guarantee anything against a team as good as Tampa. I don't think Boston could guarantee anything against a team as good as Tampa. The sport's too random and Tampa's too good. But I think that Tampa is beatable, and I think that they are a little bit worse than last year. I think that that part of it is legit. So the Leafs should not be afraid of them by any stretch. Yeah, so with... With Tampa, I think I, I largely land in the same place, in the same place as you. I don't think they really care about the regular season, right? Nope. Um, so it doesn't really, their slump doesn't really change my opinion of them relative to what I thought before. Um, worth noting, they were also, I think, they had a below average record in March of last year as well. It didn't really seem to matter. They made it to the cup final. Mm. They've also had one of the league's uh, most travel-heavy schedules over the past month. Um, so that could also be a factor. My opinion on Tampa is that they're clearly a good team. They're no longer the class of the league. Um, mm-hmm. That makes sense. The salary cap pulls good teams down and pushes good teams up, right? So Tampa's had a long run as, you know, the cream of the crop. And now they have come down to being a merely excellent team. Yeah. Um, they're a merely excellent team that really doesn't care about the regular season as well. So they are beatable, but also they can beat anyone. Um I would have the Leafs as, like, you know, slight favorites right now, um, basically because of home ice. But it's, it's you know, not that far away from a toss-up. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, unfortunately, Vasilevsky is better than anyone we're going to be able to play in net. That's just the reality. Um, if you want some reason for optimism, I think it's that Victor Hedman has looked a little bit less than superhuman this season. But again, who knows if that'll hold up in the playoffs. Um, this is from Grins Above Replacement. Let's say the Leafs lose another toss-up series to Tampa or beat them narrowly and get swept in round two. If you were GM, what are your off-season moves? 
And if Dubas isn't back next season, who would you want to see as a GM? And who do you think MLSU was actually go for? Um, do you want to take this one first? Or? Uh, sure. I mean, if Dubas isn't back next year, I would love to see MLSU take a run at Eric Tolsky. Mm. He's an AGM in Carolina right now under um, Waddell, I think, is their actual GM. Mm. And, I mean, Tolsky has long had a reputation as a very smart guy. Um, I think, wasn't he like a literal rocket scientist or something? Like, he, he, he had a PhD in, like, some physics thing that is, like, you know, well beyond my comprehension. Um, so, I think he would be, you know, he has a reputation as a smart guy. Carolina is obviously a good team, and they have been a good team. Um, I'd be I'd be interested in in him as a replacement for Dubis. I probably don't want to fire Dubis as much as I've disliked some of his moves. I think on the whole, he's clearly like a well above average GM and has done a lot more right than wrong. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the offseason moves that happen are really dependent on the manner in which we lose, right? If it's a goaltending collapse, one set of things happens. If you know William Nylander scores two points in seven games, well, he may he might be traded or something like that, like. It, it, it's kind of hard to, to commit to like a particular path without knowing how um, how the playoff loss plays out because I think that will make be a big factor in the mind of whoever is making the decisions for the Leafs. Now, whether it should or shouldn't is another question, but we're, you know, in, in this world, you know, Dubis is presumably fired, and therefore the Leafs have made decisions based on the playoffs, right? So, mm-hmm. um, hard to say exactly what path they go down, but I I probably prefer the stay the course plan kind of regardless of what happens not because i love that plan but because i don't see how we get way way better with like drastic changes sort of you know as we say just winning a trade which isn't always possible yeah like the thing we're saying here is well if they die what is the autopsy going to be and the question is going to be how do they die um you know if you put a gun to my head i would say the most likely thing i foresee is William Nylander getting traded, and then the Leafs try to build the top four of Riley, whoever the trade return is, and McCabe Brody to get over the hump. I like the stay the course plan better. Um, I like Kyle Dubas as GM. I've said it before. I'll say it again. But let's say Dubas is gone. I might try uh, Mike Gillis, who has um, a good reputation from his uh, his innovative days building the Vancouver top teams has not been a full-time GM since um I like him as sort of an innovative presence he does have a bit of an abrasive personality he pisses some people off um my guess is that if they do turf Dubas the Leafs hire a kind of moderate experience figure so either an assistant GM who's been around forever like Mike Fuda who spent like 15 years with the Los Angeles Kings or a guy who's won cups but isn't obviously a total dinosaur uh, Ray Shiro would be an example. He built winners around Crosby and Malkin, and then he kind of got foiled by, I would say, a certain amount of bad luck in New Jersey, as much as anything. Um, again, it would depend on why they think Dubas failed, but if they think that the issue was Dubas's inexperience, Ray Shiro would make a certain amount of sense, just to throw a name out there. Um, from Bjorn Naylor, if you had to replace Carlton the Bear, what animal would you choose for the Leafs mascot? Um, Arvind had the best answer on this. Let's be honest. I went with a capybara. I like unique mascots. Um, they're fun. And capybaras are really cute. Yeah, they're adorable. You know, I think we'll just go with that and be like, ah, oh, it's not like a big tough guy. It's like, ah, eh, mascots are for kids. 
don't want to scare them too well, much. Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly what I'm Mascots are really just exist for kids. So yeah. like a capybara would be a would be a, a cool a cool mascot that kids would enjoy, I think. Yeah. Um from MLG Philly, how do the Leafs optimize the top nine? The Yarncroak, Matthews, Marner line has been amazing. Bunting, Tavares, Nylander is good offensively. We don't want Kerfoot back on that line, right? Um, says the questioner. But we also don't want Bunting doing nothing in the bottom six. Appears to be no clear answer. So I would have to start by saying, you vary this answer based on who's going. In a given night, you definitely don't lock any lines in because none of the least lines have been, I would say, undeniable enough to make that obvious. Um... I dislike Kerfoot most more <laughs> less than most people, to be honest. I think the the pendulum has swung too far against him at the moment. I would be fine with him at second line left wing, bunting at third line left wing, and a dickish kind of line that's hard to play against, and Yarncroak at first line where he can stunt on some fools with his shooting. I mean, as much as I'm okay with Kerfoot, I do see the reticence to put because he has been like a minus shooter this year. He, he's not yeah. a phenomenal offensive play driver. Um. Like, his value is kind of defensive, which maybe is helpful on mm-hmm. a line with Tavares and Nylander. But, like, you know, uh, the, the the worry that I think one can have with the Leafs is, like... And this is true of many, many teams, obviously. Every team is dependent on their stars. The Leafs are very dependent on their top line to produce offense because, really, the second line of Tavares and Nylander together has not been as overwhelming as we'd like it to be, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think, you know, dependence on the stars is always going to happen. You'd like to have the second line perform better than it has been to make it less dependent on Matthews and Marner specifically, mm-hmm. right? Um, the idea of the Leafs is that we have four first-liners, right? And guys who can fit in around them. Um, so, I mean, that being said, Ryan O'Reilly coming back, I think, will help a lot. I think if I'd like to have him on the third line at this point, I think the second line has to be like quite good to justify having a very weak third line, which we, which we kind of do have um as as is right like it's you know bunting one of camp or lafferty or you know people like that but it's not it's not phenomenal i, I mean bunting did score yesterday on, on a nice play which is which is nice but i think giving him someone like o'reilly would would solidify that line a little bit um be able to provide a bit of offense there and then yeah i mean i i, I think I probably do prefer bunting on the second line, actually, so let me take back what I just said. You can have O'Reilly Kerfoot on the third line. Solid enough third line. Have bunting, Tavares, Nylander, which is strong offensively, maybe not so strong defensively. You you, you offload some of their usage to basically all the other lines to, to help them out and, and go from there. I, I think mm-hmm. I think that seems like a reasonable strategy. Um, I kind of don't really want to do 11-7 in the playoffs, but I, we keep going to it, so at this point it sort of feels like it might just be a thing um but i mean who knows louis grin has not played phenomenal we'll, we'll get talk to this talk about this in another question so may, maybe we will go to 12 6 when when everyone comes back and o'reilly coming back will we'll sort of force that upon us yeah um you know the only thing i would say beyond that is now is the time to experiment if you want to try different things get different looks the most important thing is to have the best option for game one but that's going to change probably as the series goes on, unless things go way more easily than I think they will. So Yeah. Um, just to add one more note, uh, Nylander and Tavares at 5-on-5, five five, they have like around 54% XG. This is not including the Ottawa game. 
uh, via hockey biz, but in terms of actual goals, they're a little bit underwater. So they don't have a huge minute sample together this year because Matthews and Nienander played uh, together uh, quite a bit this season, and Matthews and Nienander went together, had like an absurd um, shooting percentage run. So they're they're like at like sixty five percent goals for percentage. Uh, but yeah, Rudy Tavares and Nienander need just need to be <laughs> need to provide really good offense, right? Like yeah. that that's the idea of our. We cannot be so vulnerable to Matthews or Marner having an off game. We we need that second first line to behave like a second first line. Yeah. And that's the whole value proposition. Um, from Sweetwater, 1981. What does it mean to you two personally to have made it to 200 episodes? Make an Oscar-esque speech. Um, I'd like to thank all the little people. And the little people are also us. Because we're basically... yeah. Um, it's been fun. I mean... We just kind of persisted. Like, that's 90% of this is that we just kept doing it. Yeah, I think it's kind of a good metaphor for life in the sense that, like, a large part of success is just showing up and doing a reasonable job, even in situations where you kind of just don't feel like doing it. Like, it, it's sometimes there are just points in your life where it's helpful to just push through and do something. Mm-hmm. And eventually you find that it's like, okay, you know, you've made a habit out of this. It's just part of you. This is also working out, basically. Right? Yeah. It's like the exact same logic. Like, it, it, if you just go go through it and like actually do it, 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 it is hugely beneficial in the long term. It's just hard to like stick with it initially. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very much a do as I say, not as I do think, because I never go to the gym. Yeah, I my dad uh, was like a serious runner, and he passed that on to me, um, at least in terms of getting to do it. And he always said, like, look, the first ten minutes are the brutal part, but if you get out there and you have your shoes on and you're moving, um you're going to end up finishing the run almost every time. And so just getting yourself out the front door, which is very much within your physical abilities most of the time, is a big part of the battle. You just have to get doing it. And so, yeah, there. I mean, there have been days with this podcast where we wake up on Sunday morning and I think, ah, I don't have enough to say. But uh, that's never true. I already, I already find ways to, uh, to talk way too much. So <laughs> that problem solved itself. Um... This is another one of the Down Goes Brown-esque questions from Rick Nietzsche. Um, Make a starting lineup, so three forwards, two defensemen, one goalie, of guys named John versus guys named Alex. Alternative spellings count. Which team wins in a head-to-head? So for Team John, I went with Johnny Gaudreau, John Tavares, Jonathan Marchessault, John Carlson and John Klingberg is my defense pairing. And John Gibson and Nett. Um, you can argue for Jonathan Huberdeau here. He's been rough this season and would be playing his off wing because he's not better than Gaudreau, in my opinion. So I decided to go with Marcheseau instead on the right-hand side. I think this is pretty good, but like the defense is pretty dicey. The defense is terrible. The defense is very bad, especially considering what Klingberg has been this year. I'm just being like, well, maybe he'll recapture his form. But, uh, yeah, it's it's not great. Um, I kind of screwed up making Team Alex. You know, we talked about how um, Alexander Barkov is not really underrated anymore. Well, apparently he still is to me because either I thought of Sasha Barkov or I just did not put this together that his name actually is a variant on Alex. So I went with Alexander Ovechkin, Alexander Wenberg, and Alex Dabrinkit. Uh, a defense pairing of Alex Goligoski and Alex Petrangelo and then Alexander Georgiev. Um, 
you should have Barkov there over Wenberg. That's my bad. Uh, Arvin pointed this out to me. I think that swings it. I think yeah. Tim Alex wins this one. Yeah, it's possible we missed some people here, but like I, I couldn't find anyone else we were we were really missing in terms of uh, in terms of Johns versus Al. Because I, I started to look at like various, um, I guess various countries' versions of the names John and Alex, like Hans or like Johan. Mm-hmm. Or like yens for for like Scandinavian countries, but that that was too much work. Yeah, so. I guess maybe you could get like I don't know if I don't know if like the Finnish version of of John is Yuso. Maybe you can get Yuso Valimaki in there to help the defense. But oh yeah, you know I didn't even think of that. Um... Or maybe uh, is UC Saros a John technically? That, that you know what? Lot, but. I actually have no idea of the etymology there, but yeah. I mean, the basic problem is that Team John needs better defense. And Team Alex only really has one active, really good NHL defenseman, potentially, and then Goligoski's just kind of there. But I think that still puts them out ahead. So, yeah, anyway, interesting question. Um, favorite album you've, you guys found recently? This is from Slut Jesus, one of my favorite names that we ever get asked questions by. Um, so the two that, uh, have stuck with me in the last couple months of a bunch, uh, Dog's Body by Model Actress, which is dance punk. If you've ever enjoyed that sort of thing, it's like kind of manic, but it's a lot of fun. Or Muramuke's self-titled album, which is this really wild mix of noise pop and global dance. If you want a song, put on B-Side by Muramuke, and then just start walking around and you will immediately start swaggering around as if you're like carrying a Molotov cocktail or something. You feel good. Um, from Wes Dixon, what does the prep look like for an average back to excited episode? We're going to talk about how the sausages get made here. <laughs> um, so basically it's this Arvin and I have a conversation on Slack sometime between Monday and Thursday, where we come up with topics and or stupid things someone said. Um, I put together a Google doc that has the topics laid out in skeleton format. And maybe I add a few rough notes. And then when we can get a, a couple of hours to buckle down on it, Arvid and I do research and add like thorough good notes. Um, typically, I check Natural Statric, Hockey Viz, Evolving Hockey at the Athletic, and the SB Nation blogs, although that's become less viable in the last couple months, if they're relevant to the topic. Um, speaking personally, this usually takes me one to two hours, but for something like the mailbag... Or the League Survey Pods, it can be more. This episode was about three hours for me. The League Survey Pods are like eight to ten for each. Yeah, depending on... like The amount of research that is needed is really dependent on the podcast, like the topic of the podcast. And disappointingly, we have found that the quality of the podcast is really tied to how much research we do, which sucks. Yeah. Because <laughs> it'd be so much easier if, it, if there was no difference in quality because then we just wouldn't do any research. But it actually really helps. Yeah, you know what? In my recollection of this, just as an aside, for I would say the first 10 episodes, we probably overscripted it and we were a bit stilted. And then we made it, we might have swung the other way for a little bit where we were like, we'll just free ball it. And then like, I would say maybe 30 episodes and we kind of hit our sweet spot of like, okay, we got to have a structure here with stuff we can pull from um, mm-hmm. without scripting every single line because then we can just do riffs like this one. And that's kind of been our sweet spot ever since. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, so and the, then the after that, like, pods. yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Right, this, 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 we, maybe we should have scripted this part a little bit better. 
Um, the league survey pods are definitely the most work. Um, yes, it, it's yeah. an absolute ton of work for the league survey pods. Um, yeah. the off-season ones, and like that's also why they are so long because we have so much material for them. Because yeah. we actually like it, it's it's basically the only time that we can really really d- dive super deep into every team that is not the Leafs. So that mm-hmm. one takes absolutely forever. We haven't done this one in a while, but when we did uh, top ten players under twenty three or whatever, that took yes. a lot of research too. Yeah, and we started doing that because it was the pandemic and there was no hockey going on. And so we were like, let's just gin up some content, if I recall correctly. Um, I, I, I don't remember. I feel like it, it was either that or maybe, I don't know if we started it the year before. Oh, maybe I, it was like an off-season thing. Been, yeah, maybe I think, right. I think it was, I, knew, I think it was like a dog days of the regular season thing. Because the Leafs were like guaranteed to play the Bruins or something like that. Yeah. Because um, the, the reason I remember this is like, I remember... Like Jack Hughes, we, the first time we did it, Jack Hughes, it was, it was like Jack Hughes' rookie season. He wasn't doing amazing in his rookie year. So like he was, mm. like, the, I remember the tricky question, like, where do you place Jack Hughes? Because like, we clearly think this guy's going to be good, but he hasn't been good yet. Right. So, yeah, anyways, okay. That's no, what I remember from it. Maybe you're right. Anyway, yes. But, you, you know, it's like that. And so there's a variable amount of research. We have to do at least something. Um, and I think this is a part of the... 85% of life is just showing up and doing a competent job, basically thing. Like, we do try to do this. We're not superstars, but, like, we try to do a competent job. And I think that a surprising number of people just don't do very much. And that's why the podcast dies around, like, five episodes in. It's like, you do have to do a very modest amount of work to produce something. Um, in terms of tactical stuff, once we've got that, we do what we're doing now. We do a Google chat call um on sunday morning where we both record our end of the conversation so arvin and i right now both have headphones in and we have mics before us and they're recording each of our two uh conversations so the conversation is local to each of us once we're done i will make an mp3 out of mine i send it to arvind arvin puts the two together in GarageBand, and we get one nice track that has us having a conversation. Inevitably, there is some minor audio issue, but we've sort of learned to live with it, and we are grateful if you have as well. Um, and then uh, Arvin uploads it. So that's basically how the back to excited process works. Yeah, the the audio stuff is like, uh, we, we, I think we've gotten to the point where like the, the amount of effort it would take to like make it much better is like much higher than I'm willing to do, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> it would involve just re-listening to the podcast again and like just cutting out any audio issues or like any awkward gaps or anything like that. And I have to say, it is really jarring to listen to a one and a half hour conversation that you just had. Mm-hmm. You, it, you it, gotta give a little bit of time. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know what? And I will say, I do listen um, back to our podcasts um, usually during the week. Um, sometimes longer term, especially with the league survey ones, because, you know, I like to say, oh, did we predict this correctly or were we way off? And um, sometimes it can be painful to hear your own voice recorded. There are still some times where I'm like, oh, my God, I sound like that. But it does sort of make you a little bit better in terms of your delivery, in terms of the prep that you do. And it means that you're aware when you did something and it didn't work, that it stays with you. So there has to be a certain amount of uh, read and revise. Um, I've seen a lot of people saying it. This is from Toronto, Adam, I should say. 
I've seen a lot of people saying it, but do you think that Liljegren has played himself off the starting playoff roster as of late? Overall, he's been one of the team's better defensemen, but admittedly, he's had a pretty rough stretch. Arvin, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, unfortunately. I, I'm mm-hmm. very personally dismayed at this because I spent the entire trade down that being like, hey, the Leafs should trust their young guys. They're actually pretty good. And then Liljegren's like, the fuck I am. <laughs> but it's show you up. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's like, he was in a position where he had to give the team a reason to play him on the starting playoff roster. And he had probably the worst month of a season right at that moment. So he kind of went in the opposite direction. I like the guy. I think Liljegren is a piece of the future. I think the Leafs think that too. But at the same time, we can acknowledge this hasn't been a great month for him. And on a very crowded blue line, that probably costs him the game one job. It sucks, but that's kind of how it goes. Um, yeah, at this point, I would know. sort of, like, if the Leafs go 12-6, I would sort of just bet on um, McCabe, Brody, uh, Giordano, Hall, Riley, Shen. And I th- yeah. don't read too much into the ordering there. Um, but, yeah, like that, that, those are what I think the pairings will be. Yeah. You know, like, we, we've said probably enough about Riley, Shen at this point, or about Shen in general. You know, we talked about him when he was acquired. I think he's been pretty much as advertised. He had a very aggressive box-out shift against the Sens, where he was absolutely bullying, I think it was Brady Kachuk. He was not an easy man to bully. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm not in love with how much we're probably going to end up playing him. And, you know, if it were up to me, to some extent, I would want to count on Liljegren returning to form. But I recognize that he hasn't done enough to make that argument uh, to Sheldon Keefe who isn't starting from this on the same position than I am. So I haven't checked the numbers on this, but the, with uh, Shen and Riley, I don't know if we've been playing Shen that much, to be honest. Like, I, I think my biggest no. concern is not really Shen playing too much. It, it's just that like, you know, on a permanent basis, I, I, is Riley Shen better than, you know, some other permutation that we can have. And, you know, again, going back to your point about we spend too much time talking about depth guys, like, this probably applies to to some extent. Um, you know, the the difference between Riley Shen and, like, I don't know, say Riley Hall and Jordano Liljegren instead of Jordano Hall is probably pretty small. So. Yeah. And I, I actually, you know what I do want to say? Um, I talked about how we used to overfocus on depth guys also. We probably also overfocus on how negative the effect is. From playing a less than optimal depth guy for sure as i mean i know that mm-hmm. this is basically what you're saying but we can end up talking about these guys as if they're really really bad and unless they're like cold in war that's not true luke shen is a competent sixth defenseman and so yeah they're going to to play him and yeah i i do agree also that there are going to be a lot of scattered shifts that riley gets and shen doesn't so that even though they're on a nominal pairing riley is going to end up way ahead of him in nice time unless you have a game where there's a ton of penalties one way but i mean when would that ever happen against the Tampa Bay lightning um this is coming from fifth line center regarding the did the leafs get worse at the deadline debate i i just do want to emphasize we're not saying that they did yeah <laughs> um, they definitely didn't get yeah. they definitely didn't get worse <laughs> yeah um i i don't think that you know this questioner thinks that or that we do i just wanted to be clear there um how do you form your opinion when the results don't align with the data? Beyond new team learning curve, for example, 
Uh, McCabe's eye test and on ice results are better than his fancy stats, he says, for example. He's mostly considered good, but not by the data. Um, so it's sort of like, what do you do when the stats seem to be telling you one thing, but you're not sure? How do you adjust for that? I have a, like a process for this, so to speak. Um, first of all, I look at what is this guy's track record? So McCabe has looked good statistically in the past. I'm more willing to believe that a small sample of bad stats is not reflective of his true talent. For a player like Eric Goodbranson, for example, who has been bad for a long time in multiple contexts, it would take more evidence to persuade me that he's good. Um, for the stats that a guy does have, if they look pretty wonky or wild, how do they differ from the goals when he's on the ice? Is there something obviously unsustainable happening? A lot of times in a small sample, you'll just see things like, oh yeah, while he's on the ice, the goalies have a save percentage of 800. And it's the sort of thing where it's like, that does not sustain no matter who you are ever. And I think a lot of people get tripped up on this where they say, you know, like, okay, his results are really bad, but there has to be something there. It's like, well, sometimes crazy shit does just happen. And you always have to keep that in mind. So one of the things I look for is, is crazy shit just happening? Um, then I do factor in my eye test a little bit on the goals where he's on the ice. Is he getting lucky that it went in or did not, or vice versa? Um, oftentimes with defensemen, a lot of their numbers are impacted by the forwards they play with and whether the forwards are scoring. And they can have a pretty minimal role with regard to that. And it can end up affecting the results. Like, Luke Shen had a ton of even strength points with Vancouver this year. I don't think that meant a lot about what he was doing. Um, and then after that, I look for any other data that might shed light on this. Are a ton of shots coming from the partner side of the ice or something like that? Um, just to kind of color my assessment. I should say for the record, I think the cave is fine to good. And if they play him with Brody, it's going to be a good shutdown pairing. The question is just... What do the other pairings look like? But yeah, I don't have a huge problem with Jake McCabe. Yeah, and <sighs> well, I think the numbers with him and Brody already are good. look pretty good, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, like I don't have a ton of doubt that that's going to work as a defensive mm-hmm. pairing. It's it's too talented not to. Um, right. I mean, I think I think the thing with McCabe specifically um, yeah. is just that his numbers were bad in the first few games, but it was like. They were bad offensively, and it's like, okay, well, he, he shouldn't be the one. He's not the one really responsible for that, right? Even in, no. in this idea of Jake McCabe as, like, the best version of Jake McCabe. Mm-hmm. So I, I think in that case, it was at least relatively easy for me to chalk that up to, well, you know, he came in and the forwards had a slump at the, at the same time. It's, that's not really on McCabe. And then it does underscore that, like, McCabe is not the savior to all our problems, right? Which yeah. is, again, another thing that, you know, it, at the trade at time, people will and I'm sure we're going to this as well, you know, talk about this team. It's like, oh, what does this new guy bring into it? But like, you know, the most important players on this team were, were already here. Um, yeah. So that, you know, it's always worth keeping in mind. You don't want to take that to its logical extreme and you end up with a version of like hockey nihilism where no transaction matters because the only thing that makes a difference is whether Austin Matthews is going to score in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, whether Austin Matthews scores in the playoffs is like the biggest, <laughs> the biggest. Yeah. Part <laughs> that matters a lot. So. Yeah. And I do want to say, and I hope we tried to be clear on this. I am not overreacting aggressively to anything that's happened since the trade deadline. Like I am moving my opinions kind of slowly. 
And that applies, by the way, to Rasmus Sandin. You know, he, he started off hot in a point sense with the Washington Capitals. It's like, my opinion of Rasmus Sandin is formed on the years that he played in Toronto. And I'm not making big changes based on a hot little shooting streak that he gets somewhere. I didn't like trading him, but it's because of a bigger sample of evidence. That's the biggest thing is try not to overreact. And uh, it's another bias that comes from when you have a podcast or write or just talk a lot about the Leafs a lot is you're going to get over-engaged. So maybe be patient is the best takeaway from that segment. Um, from Max Power, with current standings, if we had 1-16 to 16 choose your opponent playoffs, uh, who would you and Arvin choose if you were Boston, Carolina, NJ, uh, etc.? Does it end up much different than the straight ranking? Uh, what are your thoughts, Armin? Mostly would be standing order. I think the big thing that can change it is injuries. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, these are just examples that wouldn't necessarily come up in this particular year, but just illustrative examples of a situation where I would prefer a, weak, a weaker team by standing points to a stronger team. Mm -hmm. uh, or, sorry, a stronger team by standing points to a weaker team to face. Um, like, I would not want to face Colorado as they get healthy this year. Yeah. Right, like I, Dallas is a good team, but I'd much rather face Dallas than Colorado. Yeah, um, I, I think that's very fair. Yeah, like at the higher end, I mean, this isn't a team that is that would get chosen because they're one of the best teams in the league. But Carolina without Sveshnikov have not looked good. Right, so like yeah. there, there's situations where a guy just like goes out due to injury. This you know at this point in the season, and that changes the team dramatically. If Austin Matthews tears his ACL today, the Leafs are like a well below average playoff team. Yeah, yeah. God uh, God help us. I, I think, and think of a couple of situations. The biggest thing is that I think Winnipeg is basically a paper tiger. Like, I've always been skeptical of them. I just think that they're a very good goalie and then a couple of opportunistic finishers. And they kind of cobble together competence. But every time Winnipeg loses, I'm like, I knew it. Frost. We despise Winnipeg. Yeah, no, <laughs> we're, we're like the ultimate Winnipeg haters. I agree with you. I think that that's like not a real team. Yeah, no, I think that they're fake. And, like, that's not even, a, like, a knock on Winnipeg against whom I have nothing. Um, they've suffered enough as a city. Uh, it's just, like, I don't think that this is a very good team. So, like, if the last two spots in the West ended up being, like, Winnipeg and Calgary or something, I would rather face Winnipeg even if they finished ahead. And I know, like, there's a chance Connor Hellebuck just goes supernova and you lose. But I think that they are a fake team. So... Yeah, that, that's a, a good example. You would get um, kind of one of those fringy teams. If you get like a team that's been very unlucky, uh, either with injuries or just in general in PDO or something, that might be the kind of thing where I'm like, maybe I skip over. Uh, I think in terms of what teams would actually do, they would be really cautious. Mm. Like, they're, like the league is just conservative by temperament and it would take a lot for them to pick out of order. Yeah. Uh, question about Winnipeg, though. Why is Nick Eaters mm. only playing like 15 or 16 minutes a night? That's weird. He was He's coming back over. from injury at one point, was he not? Or am I misremembering? Yeah, he, I mean, yeah. I, yeah, but that's like 40 games ago. <laughs> He's working back real slow. Ehlers has always been the kind of guy, though. He's like a Nylander, where he never seemed to have the trust of his coaches commensurate with his actual performance, which was consistently yeah. awesome. But it, it's also weird because, like, I get why coaches don't trust Liam Neander because he, he like, makes these <laughs> dumbass plays where he's like, maybe I should pay for the 1% chance that I get a breakaway. That'd be sick. <laughs> right? But, like, Eaters is, like, kind of a gritty player. Like, Eaters will fight. 
Yeah. Right? I, like, he, he's you know, much more hard-nosed than Neander is. Yeah. I don't know. Like, um, I couldn't tell you. Definitely, it was very funny because for a while there, everyone was like, oh, Rick Bonus has solved everything for us, and Paul Maurice was obviously the problem in there. And then, like, 40 games later, every uh, press conference bonus gives, he's like, fucking Mark Shifley. <laughs> Like he's clearly he doesn't quite say it in those terms, but there is a disconnect between him and certain of the star players. So we'll see. Um, from exit, Steve left. How did it become the style nowadays to paint the inside of your house with boring grays and beiges, with absolutely no real color to speak of? Also, and maybe related, which HGTV personality would you punch in the mouth if given a free shot? Um. My guess would be that neutral colors are the most saleable because they're the least likely to put people off and a lot of people simply stick with the default. I have never watched HGTV though, so I am not qualified to either punch anybody or maybe even answer this question. Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't, I don't think I could name a, an HGTV host slash anchor off the top of my head. Um, also the Property the... Brothers still a thing or is that ongoing? I think they might be, but like, they seem pleasant enough. I, like, I've never had to deal with them when they were brothering a property, but I assume that they're fine. Yeah. Um, on the neutral cutters thing, I mean, having neutral cutters on the wall also gives you, like, lots of options for more changeable pieces, like furniture and accents or whatever. I mean, it gives you more versatility. I actually, you know what, um, as I mentioned on a previous podcast, we moved a month ago, and uh, we saw a place... And it looked like it had been painted by the Easter Bunny on a bender. So there was like yellow and purple and pink in like contrasting walls in the same room. And I think if you had seen this place, you would understand why people default to neutral tones. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So maybe that's the best argument. Yeah, I think colors uh, that are like especially garish. Um, probably do limit your decorating options. I think that's valid. And then, you know, there's always the risk that you'll put off a fire or something. So, Neutral tones are the TJ Brody of, uh, <laughs> of room colors. You can play, you can like, you know, play them with anything. You can play them with a really offensive player, play them with a really defensive player. It'll still work. Yeah. So all situations. Uh, this is from a uh, friend and colleague, Hardev. Both of you give me your most awkward laughs. Um... Isn't my normal laugh awkward enough? We've probably done it at some point during the pod, so I think we can move on. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on the air before. One time when I was like 20, I was uh, out with some people and my girlfriend at the time. And uh, this guy who was kind of like the the group asshole was kind of razzing everybody. And he accused me of having the worst laugh of anyone at our university. And... I like I played it off and then we were going home like me and my girlfriend I was like is that true and she was kind of like yeah well you know nobody's perfect right like she did not make any effort to defend me against this she was like yeah you sound it's not good but <laughs> anyway so make of that what you will uh you've heard my laugh enough apparently um this is from Dustin Feather oh, sorry Duster Feather uh what was the best case goaltending scenario with hindsight for the Leafs last off season? And would you feel better going into the playoffs with that situation or the current one? Also player by player, how does the Leafs D stack up against Tampa, Carolina, Boston and defensive metrics? 
Um, so I have to say for like the best goaltending scenario with hindsight, you can say, well, with hindsight, the Leafs should have traded for Linus Ulmark or something like that because he was coming off a bit of an iffy year. But like of the reasonably available options, I guess, you know, Georgiev Samsonov probably would have been better. I don't have a huge problem with what they did do. I wasn't in love with the Matt Murray thing. I like the Samsonov thing. The Matt Murray thing has been fine. Samsonov has been good. It's kind of worked out about as as you would desire. I should also say Eric Comrie, who I was kind of eyeing with some interest, has been ass in Buffalo. So, yeah. Um, as regards defense, um, we'll go through this in more detail. Our next... Uh, podcast in a couple weeks is going to be a preview of Leafs versus Tampa and so that's going to be much more detailed so I won't go too heavy on it right now I would say compared to the Bruins uh, TJ Brody as I noted looks really really good pretty much all of the Bruins defenders not all of them most of them though are significantly outperforming a good expected goals against so like they look good by that but their actual goals against are infinitesimal so it's a combination of very good defense and good goaltending. I think that's borne out. Carolina has better expected goals against than Boston does, but they don't outperform it to the same extent. You know, like they don't have that stacking of great defense and superstar goaltending that has made Boston the cream of the league. Um, I think that the Leafs are definitely competitive with these teams. And like with Tampa, like there's nothing about them that makes me think that the Leafs are outclassed. Whether they're better, I don't know. But they're definitely in the same conversation, I think. Any thoughts, Arvin? Not really. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Kevin Petty had a tweet about this recently. Uh, the, the Leafs goaltending this year, it feels like we got pretty close to the best case scenario, honestly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I, 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 don't, I don't have too much to criticize. On that point, I mean the the player affair has the the lead D stack up against other teams. You 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 went through that, and it's we'll we'll go through it in a lot of detail on uh, on our preview pod. But I mean, suffice it to say that the Leafs are competitive with them defensively, with the exception of Carolina, who who are kind of in their own in their own world in terms of uh, defensive numbers, if I recall correctly. They do, and like they look really really good by goals against. But I think Carolina can't really be expected to outperform their metrics mm. to any great extent. I, I mean, in the small sample, anything can happen, but like, you don't think that they're going to do it. Whereas Boston has been doing it quite extensively. Also, yeah. Being down Sveshnikov is a bad hit for Carolina. Like, for I sure. think that takes them, that that hurts <laughs> a lot. So for, for a team that, you know, is light on star power relative to the other contending teams in the East, like losing, you know, either their best or second best forward is a massive, massive blow to them. So I agree with that completely. Yeah. Okay. Well, that has been our 200th episode. Um, thank you to everyone who wrote in, to everyone who congratulated us. It is really kind of you to do that and to listen to us uh, when we publish episodes. And we're very grateful for that. So thank you. Yes. Um, so you can catch all of mine and Fudeman stuff at pensionfanpuppets.com. The site has now moved to um, a new a new service, but I think that URL should work. And if it doesn't, then that URL should point you to the correct URL. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, 
there's been a lot of work to do the transition, which Fulman and I have not really been a part of at all. Other people <laughs> to take the credit for that, but um, our contributions they've, they've done, they've on this podcast job. and this podcast only. So that's exactly. Um, but yeah, they've, they've done a, they've done a, a great job. It's a, I know it's been a lot of work. Um, and yeah, they're going to keep providing, you know, the least coverage you've, uh, you've grown to, to love and enjoy. So definitely check them out, subscribe to them if you, if you, uh, have the funds to, and, uh, thank you for listening. So you can also catch Fullman and I on Twitter at RV and AT Fullman. Wait, Fullman, did you have like a, did you ever get verified on Twitter? You're like notable enough that it was possible. No, I never got verified. Okay. So you I, don't have a check. Now that this. window is closed. I'm never going to pay for a verification. I'll tell you that. That's like Yeah. It. <laughs> so this, this is off topic but did you see that like you can pay for twitter blue but then also have a thing to unhide to like hide the fact that you have paid for twitter blue because <laughs> it's like kind of a dorky thing to do yeah because everyone who did it got mocked mercilessly in the replies and the quote tweets for the entire like two months oh man musk is a buffoon anyway yeah anyways on that note um thank you for listening we'll see you soon <laughs>